How do you define one of the most iconic people of the last century? How hard is it to take that person from a mythological place and bring them into reality to better understand them? Today we are going to attempt to do that to show the humanity of one such person, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., one of the biggest and most connected names with the American Civil Rights Movement, as well as just all-around really impressive people. Yet, he did not inspire everyone, was not without his own faults, and even made an enemy out of the FBI. So who was this man before he became a legend? We find out the history and the truth involved in the myth-building of one of the most passionate and articulate people I've ever heard recordings of. All that and more on another episode of The Remedial Scholar. That's ancient history. I feel I was denied, critical, need to know information. It belongs in a museum, bro. Stop skipping your remedial class. Welcome everyone to the Remedial Scholar. As always, I am your dutiful host, Levi. Thank you for joining me. Happy MLK Day. Gosh, what a quinky-dink. An episode on Dr. King on his holiday and also birthday, which it doesn't always coincide with that, but it is his birthday and it is MLK Day. If only someone planned that. <laughs> Oh yeah, that's right, I did. Um, I'm excited for this episode and to share so much with you. Before that, I want to quickly remind you all about the Facebook page and group as well as the YouTube channel where the video includes images during the length of the episode if you're into that. It also includes my face if you're into that. And that's really it for the intro stuff, so let's move on to the content you're all here for. I, like many American children, remember the simplistic views given to us during or on the civil rights movement as well as the characters involved in school. I think Rose of Parks and Dr. King are the two biggest ones and I had a few rowdy teachers who taught about like the tragedy of Emmett Till or about Malcolm X but very seldomly did it get much deeper than those things and we did not learn anything specifically about Dr. King other than the you know the meat and potatoes of him really. Really just played a few clips from the I Have a Dream speech and talked about how he was a peaceful figurehead of the civil rights movement which partially true I suppose. I think the civil rights movement is best described as a bunch of different communities reaching their boiling point before it all reached ahead and these protests movements and even sometimes riots became connected towards the end of the movement itself some people would even say that the movement is an ongoing process and i think that ar argument does have some validity but i would like to give a bit of uh, some of the rationale as to why i chose to do dr king in general before i get too far along as he's not like super duper old school history but as some of you who may or may not know me last january i was given the opportunity to go on a pilgrimage to various civil rights hotspots. it was sponsored by the university of eau claire which is where i live and the organization within the college that i attend which is not that same college offered some spots on the trip and i applied immediately keeping in mind that this is at the point in my college career that i had not actually attended in-person class since i had just moved up to wisconsin in october a few months earlier so i really didn't know anyone other than the represent representatives of the trio program i I'm in so this was a moment for me to meet some people in my school as well as the university and in the town as well which I thought was good but also you know the history fiend in me was really interested in learning about the various places and moments in which I really admittedly knew nothing about I got the cliffs notes cliff <laughs> I got the cliffs notes whitewashed version of the civil rights movement and now I was able to go to the exact places in which these moments occurred. I got to see the high school in which the Little Rock Nine were attempting to desegregate, which led to a mob of crazy adults shouting and harassing 
a child, Elizabeth Eckford. I said the exact steps of the building, walked up them, looked at the bench in which Elizabeth sat while waiting for an escape. We traveled to Mississippi, driving around the back roads near where Emmett Till was murdered. Saw the decaying Bryant grocery where he was... Uh, where he allegedly accosted Carolyn Bryant, and the riverbanks of the river where he was found, not the specific part, but near there. I saw the courthouse where Roy Bryant and J.W. Milam were acquitted of all charges, despite them later completely admitting their guilt in a magazine. We visited the home of Medgar Evers, who was shot in his driveway by a coward too afraid to face the World War II veteran in an actual fight. The home is still painted as it was in 1963, a lovely seafoam, like, green-type color, stood in the driveway where he he had bled out until he could be taken to the hospital where he would die. I visited Selma, where we met the fabulous Miss Joanne Bland. This is actually how make a lot of the connections in the Seven Degrees of Kevin Bacon, if you've ever played that game. I have a photo with her, and she has a photo with so many impressive people, and the link moves through that way. Like, immediately I can think of, like, I have a photo with her, and she's in a photo with John Lewis, uh, the now deceased John Lewis, and he was in a photo with Obama. So, anyway. <laughs> um, so, Miss Miss Bland was on the uh, Edmund Pettus Bridge on Bloody Sunday in Selma when she and all the other marchers were put under tear gas, chased, and beaten by the Alabama Highway Patrol. We were given a tour in which we visited the Brown Chapel, the last meeting point before the marches took place, like they left from there. Uh, she also led us to a place which is now known as the Foot Soldiers Park, which is the park where people like John Lewis, Stokely Carmichael, and others drew up the plans that they would do for the marches. She had us pick up a piece of gravel in which she spoke about how the ordinary people who walked on those rocks all that time ago moved on to do extraordinary things. If you could find the videos of it, it's really like, it's a great moment that she shares with people and I cannot do it justice, but one of the most powerful things I took from that moment was uh, she said something to, I'm paraphrasing, but this is pretty close to what she said. Uh, you take that rock and make a promise to make a difference. You take that rock, hold it in your hand and take it, take from it the strength of ordinary people who stood on that rock and made history. When you feel like there's nothing you can do, even if all you can do is throw that rock, you take it and you make a difference and you stand up for people who need it. Um, the bulk of that is pretty, pretty much verbatim, but uh, there's a couple minor tweaks that I don't remember specifically, but that's, that's the general theme. And that lady was awesome. I'm super glad I got to meet her, but we also, uh, in Selma experienced a slavery reenactment, which is, it's about as intense as it sounds without giving the experience away. And what it meant is probably exactly what you're imagining. It was a very powerful, uh, tool to help illustrate what words can sometimes not show. I can go on and on and on about this trip. And honestly, I probably will at moments in this episode. And also another topic in the future probably or topics that cover the civil rights movement or adjacent things uh, you're gonna hear about this trip then too but i'm using this moment to share the about the experience, but also to discuss the moment in which I realized I actually knew nothing of the civil rights movement in comparison to what other people did, um, as well as the people involved in it, Dr. King included. On this trip, I heard a speech which well, I, I will play a part of later, but I heard a speech which I had never heard before about and the intensity, passion, overall oration just sent me into tears combined with some other moments which I will describe when I actually play the clip. All of that around Dr. King and it was actually at his tomb in Atlanta, which we were visiting where I heard it. And we also visited Memphis uh, to the museum, which is built into the motel in which he was assassinated in. Or yeah, I saw the place where his body lay, uh, the room he stayed in before, and the spot where 
the shot was even taken from across the street so that is the reason behind this episode i know probably didn't need to be said because is he is such an influential figure but i just kind of wanted to include that make it a little more personal so without further ado Let's get into it. Where does the civil rights movement begin? Most sources put it around 1950, but you could make the argument in dating it decades or even a century before. For my non-American listeners or just anyone who doesn't remember this stuff really, the United States has had one of the most extensive and industrialized slavery institutions in history. What makes me say that? Well, if you have ever seen a map of where most of the slave ships were sent, you know that a big portion were transported to the Caribbean or South America. Around 6% of the transported slaves went to the American colony or the future US. Why is it such a major thing Thing for American slavery to gain all of the attention because while 70% were transported to other places by 1860 two-thirds of all enslaved people were living in the American South this is due to a series of different things the biggest is the human human mind's ability to rationalize its behavior in some extreme situation I think another part of it is that the slavery in America really focused on breaking down people mentally alongside literally breeding more slaves into existence so you get to teach these <laughs> children as they grow up that this is normal like this is your life and then you just continue rinse repeat and this isn't something that worked only in the united states but i think the contrasting manner in which slaves were handled it in the united states versus anywhere like in south america or the caribbean it's a little bit different the amount of slaves per owner was dwarfed in those places as opposed to the plantations in the south those outside the united states featured plantations where average amount of slaves was you know 150 ish per plantation but the united the south in the united states could have thousands of slaves on one plantation which is even more compounded with the fact that some of these slaves were in charge of others like there was a system a hierarchy of this and it was crazy you would have slaves in prominent you know prominent roles directing other slaves which is like some evil slavery wizard maneuver that broke these people into being part of the system in which they were held it's crazy to think about because that's also many of the like that's all they knew they were born into it. Thomas, Thomas Jefferson had his own slave children who weren't even freed until after his death. Did they probably live better than other slaves? More than likely, but still, you're, you're not allowed to leave, and that's your dad. That's crazy. Presidential children. The United States system of slavery was also not unique in anything in particular, like the punishments, the record keeping, the viciousness, like all of that existed other places but what it was unique in is the blending of all the countries that had their fingers in the colonial pot of the early united states created a very different array of ideas and techniques and how to handle things and how to do things like that so it doesn't take a genius or a fancy book to tell you that obviously slavery is bad and it really isn't a competition on which slaves had it worse because at the end of the day they were all slaves at, and i don't say all this just to try and share some of the plight of the african-american people i sh i share this because it is integral to the civil rights movement in general this institutional industrial and very much ingrained system of slavery set up regular and unflinching amount of disparity in the system that the freed slaves would be involved in following the conclusion of the civil war before the american civil war slavery was prevalent so so much so that eight presidents had been slave owners if you're keeping score abraham lincoln president during the civil war was the 16th president so half of all presidents before him had slaves that's how prevalent it. voting rights were restricted to white men you know with property the naturalization act of 1790 limited the United States citizenship to whites. Post-Civil War, three amendments abolished slavery, granting black people citizenship and established their right to vote. The Reconstruction Era faced challenges leading 
to the emergence of the Ku Klux Klan. The disputed election of 1876 resulted in disenfranchisement of you know, enabling Southern whites to regain political control. Between 1890 and 1908, Southern states passed laws that further disenfranchised African Americans and even further poor whites included. Post-Reconstruction period was characterized by racial segregation, disenfranchisement, economic exploitation, and violence against African-American. The Jim Crow system enforced racial, racial discrimination, prompting the founding of the NAACP in 1909 to advocate for civil rights. Great migration witnessed millions of African-Americans moving north, impacting demographics and creating social tension. The Red Summer of 1919 experienced race riots and discrimination in northern and western cities. African-Americans outside of uh, the south faced improved conditions, yet uh, systemic discrimination persisted so the civil rights movement from 1950 to 1968-ish aimed to eradicate segregation discrimination the 1954 brown v board of education decision declared segregation unconstitutional the movement utilized direct action nonviolence, and civil disobedience great migration and housing segregation continued contributing to social competition and tensions then president truman's 1948 executive order 9981 ended segregation in the military. The civil rights struggle persisted against massive resistance in the South, resulting in significant social and legal transfer transformations. So that's kind of the baseline. That's a very quick <laughs> overview of the civil rights movement. I will touch upon some of the major issues that as they intertwine with our topic today. Within the civil rights movement overall, it was built up of many smaller movements. In general, African-American people wanted to be treated exact same as everyone else. Equality, a fair say in the country, which exploited free labor to expand its economic wings. You know, nothing major. These movements, which sought fair voting practices, equal schooling, representation, and a multitude of other objections to the status quo. These things saw boiling points in different places. You may know the voting rights really saw ahead in Selma or desegregation in places like Little Rock or with little ruby ridges with little ruby bridges in louisiana these places you may have heard dr king's voice discuss and may have even seen him and this is not because he was the one organizing them dr king's team the sclc would join in on these offering their resources and nationally recognized influence to help push these movements further along in my trip that i mentioned before this was something that was emphasized many times this is why the park in selma where i received the rock that these people had walked on is called foot soldiers park the people who laid the groundwork did the major bulk of these things before Dr. King ever got there. Like it is important, it is important for these communities, but it's also you know learning about the accuracy of the overall movements. Because if you ask high school Levi, I would have just assumed that he had done everything short of drawing up the posters for the event. So with that preamble out of the way, let's get let's look into his life. Martin Luther King Jr. was born on January 15th, 1929 to Alberta and Michael King. Wait a minute. Yes, you heard that correctly. Not only was his dad's name Michael, but his name was Michael as well. Actually, guy, I was going to do a joke like Martin Luther King Jr. was born to Alberta and Reggie or something like that because, you know, the name Junior implies that we know exactly what his dad's name is. So I looked it up and I was like, oh, their names were all changed. Okay. So it kind of kind of worked out, but not how I planned. Moving on. Born Michael Luther King Jr. in Atlanta, Georgia, January 15th, 1929. The reason the name change occurred is because his grandfather had passed away and his father took over as the pastor for Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. Soon after that, the name change occurred to honor the OG Martin Luther, famous Protestant Martin Luther, who famously made his mark 
on history by nailing his theses to the Catholic Church door, which was a list of grievances and criticisms of corruption in the Catholic Church, so pretty great namesake to have, really. I also have to brag, because I did get to see the childhood home of young Martin, as well as the Ebenezer Church, which still stands in Atlanta to this day. I'm going to be posting my own pictures from these places in, in the video, so if you want to watch the video and see these things, you will see them there. Anyway, with such a massive personality in his adulthood, you'd think, you know, young MLK to be like those uh, two serious characters in some comedy movie. Imagining someone like young Sheldon or Will Ferrell's character in the movie The Other Guys where he says that when he was a kid he audited his parents. There were some discrepancies. That's the kind of thing you'd expect from a figurehead of so much of the civil rights movement. I imagined him as this little kid standing on top of the playground preaching some powerful sermon about the lack of quality food at lunch or better distribution of time management for the swings during recess time of course these are silly examples but it really leads into the fact that he was a very silly child yes of course his home was very serious with a passionate reverend as the patriarch but was not without some pretty funny anecdotes thanks to the future dream haver you can find his writings on his childhood expressing the destiny he knew he held to become a minister as his father grandfather and uncle were as well so what did this man do well he did all sorts of totally normal kid things he played sports rode bikes took piano lessons scared the neighbors you know kid stuff <laughs> he also with aid from his brother tried to sabotage the piano stool so that his instructor would fall down and the lessons would end the <laughs> this did not happen but uh what a valiant effort he had he would scare the neighbors by taking some of his mom's fur coats and putting them on like the end of like mop handles or sticks and poke them out of bushes when people walk by sometimes growling or making sounds like animals as the just <laughs> just being a total goofball as the religious nature of the home became more clear to young mlk when things came out like reading bible verses before the family dinner he would pick the shortest verses he could find to eat faster which i find hilarious and endearing i guess the moral of this information is to understand that he was a kid like the ones before and the ones after ice cream piano lessons being rambunctious eventually he would be involved in the church being the leader of the church's moral and religious education put on by the ebenezer baptist church and while his child was while his childhood was relatively average you have to remember that he was born in 1929 in atlanta and all of the south was still deeply segregated his childhood taught him what america was like at some of its worst schools restaurants stores and even public parks were segregated and the people who strayed from these restrictions were often met with disrespect or worse young martin had witnessed things like this happening and that no doubt played into his empathetic nature which pushed him to you know turn to the man he would become really interesting uh, story i found about this type of thing is a incident when young martin and his father were at a store and a clerk who i assume by the story was white called the martin senior boy if you're unaware boy against a man especially a black man is one of the most racist things you could say to somebody without actually saying a slur it's an old holdover from the slavery days and a big part of jim crow and you kind of you call an adult man of color boy and they know exactly where you stand this clerk spoke to martin senior this way in front of young martin jr and you can probably guess that it was not taken well the elder king responded with his son watching in a way that was pretty standard with the lineage it seems he told the clerk my son is a boy and i am a man and you do not speak to me that way also how hilariously out of his element that clerk was <laughs> he tried to talk down to this man simply for the you know 
skin tone color. Forgetting how silly the concept of racism is, you're working in a grocery fam. Like, you're not, <laughs> you're a grocery store clerk. You're not in a position to be talking down to anybody. I mean, maybe you can make the argument that the guy working there owned the entire store or something, but either way, I don't know. This is super rude. Martin Luther King Jr. described his childhood as congenial with supportive and loving uh, family. His parents, particularly his mother, Alberta King, uh, Alberta Williams King, played a pivotal role in instilling values of self-respect and resistance against racial injustice. Alberta's the daughter of a successful minister, provided a comfortable upbringing for her children. He was committed to the Christian faith, soft-spoken and easygoing. She taught Martin about discrimination, slavery, and the importance of maintaining self-respect in the face of inequality. Martin Sr., the sharecropper's son, was a strong, courageous figure who stood against segregation and also fought for civil rights. And he, too, played a key role in shaping Martin's conscience and committed to Justice King Sr. was a president of the NAACP in Atlanta, fought against racial segregation, and never accepted the uh, oppressive system. So it didn't really evolve in a vacuum. The King family's experiences with segregation, discrimination, including incidences of racial injustice that Martin personally faced, fueled his early resentment against the system. Despite the Despite the challenges, his parents encouraged him to love and not hate, emphasizing the importance of Christian values in the face of adversity. As, as Martin grew older, he became more aware of the racial and economic injustices around him. His childhood experiences, along with the teachings of his parents, laid the foundation for his later involvement in the civil rights movement and his commitment for fighting for equality, justice, human dignity, from examples such as the one I had shared before. He's also a really brilliant child entering school before a normal age. I mean, this is not abnormal. <laughs> Who hasn't entered school super young? Off the top of my head, I can think of, uh, well, myself. Uh, <laughs> started kindergarten at four. Am I a genius? Obviously not. But <laughs> am I am okay? No, also not. But that didn't stop me from writing that dumb joke, so you're welcome. He did learn quickly and even got to test out of high school early. He graduated at 15, skipping both the 9th and 12th grades, entering college in what would be his junior year. I did find in my research that he struggled in speech during his school years early on, I'm sure. <laughs> he found that groove eventually though, because he uh, entered a contest in 1944, gave a speech in which he won, but on the bus ride home he experienced some of the notorious bus seat hostility at the time. Young Martin and his teacher, who accompanied him, were ordered by the bus driver to get out of their seats to make room for the white riders. He initially resisted until his teacher told him that he would be arrested if he did so, caused him to relent, and they had to stand the rest of the bus ride, but not before the bus driver called the 15-year-old a black SOB. You know, you can, you can extend that acronym, you know exactly what I'm talking about. This interaction, King would later write, would never leave his memory and was the angriest he had ever been in his life, he said. He graduated in 1944, immediately and enrolled in Morehouse College out of Atlanta, really, because of World War II, he was able to slip in as the college was trying to keep its enrollment numbers uh, by admitting high school students who had passed entrance exam. Martin was able to capitalize on that. He also had his first interaction with a more normal integrated community. He spent time in Connecticut, witnessed firsthand how it was truly possible for black and white people to mingle with that move about without confrontation. Initially, King hesitated to become a minister, but it was under the guidance of the president of the college, Benjamin Mays, and George Kelsey, his philosophy professor, who were both ordained and had an impact on not only his destiny, but that of an entire movement. He spoke about the passionate 
and an emotional outburst which he had experienced at his father's own sermons which made him feel that he would never find that same intense passion about religion that others do. He would graduate from Morehouse in 1948. He then began studying at Crozier Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania. This was also the first time in which he attended a school that was integrated which had to be a little bit wild maybe not for him but you know for someone else in that situation it seemed like he had some really great foundations by this point so i find it hard to believe that he would have been phased by any of this at all it was at crozier where he was introduced to the teachings of and philosophies of gandhi which would influence his nonviolent future he also gained support of his classmates many of whom were also southerners uh, but of you know the white persuasion in a recommendation letter written by one of his professors they said that he had been elected to various positions which were supported by the student body which spoke to his character the content of his character if you will. The next chapter had King meeting a young Coretta when he graduated from Crozier with a Bachelor's of Divinity degree in 1951. That's such a cool name. And then went to Boston University. Coretta was not his first love though. King was rather flirtatious as a young man, which does not surprise me in the slightest. Man had charisma out the wazoo. He actually was in a romantic relationship with a white woman, the daughter of a German immigrant who he had even planned to marry. Betty Moitz was an art student at the nearby Moore College of Art while he was at Crozier and the two were head over heels. This however was not approved by many of King's friends or even his family. His father reminded him of the perception not only from white people regarding their racial marriage but or relationship but also a large portion of black people might not favor it as well. Ultimately King resolved that his future plans were more important than his personal love. This is something that uh, some colleagues and friends say he never really recovered from. It's kind of crazy seeing the levels of maturity to uh, have so much forethought about where he could end up, what he could be, which at the time was more than likely just being the minister at an all-black church and how that would potentially look bad on him for having a white wife to his congregation, which is pretty crazy to me, like how, how very different things could be. The bigger implication is that would he ever have been able to do the things that he did if that was the path he chose? Like, would he have been killed even sooner because he's in a interracial relationship who knows either way this is all pretty high maturity thinking from a 22 year old Greta on the other hand was uh studying the at the New England Conservatory of Music when they were introduced via a mutual friend. I find it interesting that initially Coretta had no intention of dating any preacher. She felt uh, that they had a false piety that she couldn't relate to but she found Martin to be endearing and because of this eventually relent into a relationship with him. She spoke about how just down to earth he was in comparison to other preachers that she had met. So, And this relationship would actually be the first tie to the civil rights movement. See, Coretta, who was originally from Alabama, would bring Martin down to Montgomery, Alabama, and that was where the famous bus boycotts would be held. Coretta and Martin would be married on June 18th, 1953 in Highburger, Alabama. He would take a pastor position at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, which I have also been there. In June of 1955, King received his doctorate and their first child was born, Yolanda King. 1955 was quite the pivotal year of the civil rights movement. Emmett Till was murdered in Mississippi in August and from the strength of his mother, Mamie Till Mobley, and her passion had inspired to had inspired many to take part in the Montgomery bus boycotts later that same year. Rosa Parks even specifically talked about how because of that, because of Mamie's uh, 
strength in that moment in like the moments after her son had been murdered and in the funeral she used that to uh, stand her ground the beginning of the entire movement can be traced back to uh, brown v board of education which deemed that racial segregation of the schools was unconstitutional that took place the prior year in 1954 and all these things combating the existing jim crow laws that existed in the south and were even upheld by 1896 ruling of Plessy v. Ferguson where the famous separate but equal ruling was given. By 1955 it was obvious that separate was not equal because you know these places these communities in which Jim Crow laws existed found a way to abuse the system and make it even worse. The Montgomery bus boycott stands as a crucial milestone in the civil rights movement unfolding in the you know in Montgomery Alabama. The spark that ignited the boycott was uh, Rosa Parks's courageous act of resistance when she refused to yield her seat to a white man interesting point which i had never knew until i took this trip that i talked about is that rosa parks did not sit in the white section of the bus she was sitting in the segregated black section and was told to give up that seat the seat that was you know decided not good enough for white people but that is just fine for any other black people that's the seat that she refused to give up so that's kind of wild together they orchestrated a highly successful boycott of the city's buses propelled by a demand for fundamental changes courteous treatment first you know first come first serve seating arrangement and opportunities for black individuals to work as bus operators. lasting an impressive 382 days the boycott was not merely a temporary disruption but a sustained determined effort to challenge the deeply rooted segregation practices the pinnacle of success came in the form of supreme court ruling that unequivocally declared alabama's bus segregation laws unconstitutional this legal triumph marked a significant victory for the broader civil rights movement setting the precedent for dismantling discrimination practices however the aftermath of this also revealed the harsh realities of entrenched racism the white backlash it was swift, severe, manifesting in acts of violence and aggression. Despite the legal victory, Montgomery experienced an increase of segregation across various facets of life. Backlash demonstrated the deeply ingrained resistance to change within the segments of the white population, underscoring the persistent challenges faced by the civil rights movement. So following this, in 1957, Dr. King and a few other ministers created the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, devised to give a strong central organization for the broad civil rights movement. The SCLC was a major driving force in the civil rights movement and was kind of brainstormed by a bunch of people, but some of the key figures, Bayard Rustin, Ella Baker, Fred Shuttlesworth, Ralph Aber Abernathy, and initially, Rustin wanted C.K. Steele, a prominent preacher at the time, uh, to be the president, but Steele said he would not accept the position, but would gladly be a part of SCLC if King was chosen in his place. Steele had met King in 1952 and became very close with him after. Rustin was also involved in helping teach King about Gandhi further like on a bigger level which further influenced his nonviolent tactics later on wasn't all nonviolent though because in 1958 Dr. King was at a book signing when he was stabbed by a mentally ill woman he even gave his account of the story in the mountaintop speech speech recorded the night before his assassination and he talks about how she stabbed him in the chest and when he went to the hospital and they x-rayed him they told him that the blade was on the edge of his aorta and had he sneezed he would have bled out which is pretty pretty not great he also mentioned the letter he received while recovering that and that a 
young white girl wrote to him stating that she was glad that he didn't sneeze which is kind of like the sweetest damn thing you can hear really the SCLC even arranged for King to visit India and meet with Gandhi's followers which he did but this was you know enough to start getting his uh attention from J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI now why would visiting the people of Gandhi lead to King becoming a target of the FBI well, he became a member and later honorary president of the Gandhi Society for Human Rights and the group would submit a request to President Kennedy, who was pretty outspoken, you know, for the time, like, against his contemporaries about resolving the civil rights question. This was not fulfilled and in turn, Robert Kennedy, the attorney general at the time, uh, ordered the FBI to place King under surveillance, which he began in 1963. And this surveillance would go on for the rest of his life and include a lot of things. Um, J. Edgar Hoover tried to pretty much blackmail him. Like, not really, because he wasn't trying to extort him for anything specifically, but he did try to give Lyndon B. Johnson some things and, like, you know, a lot of different things. Trying to sow seeds of doubt in his character. So, the growing concern about among both the government and the general public was the ties to communism through this group that's right yeah communism the big red fear of the 20th century was the charge which allowed the fbi to follow and wiretap all sorts of people like dr king but also people like ernest hemingway john lennon actually yeah, it might it might be a shorter list to say who hoover did not bug because he He's, he bugged everybody. He had a major vendetta against King, as I mentioned, and this would continue for the rest of his life. Now, this order by uh, now this order by RFK was uh, compounded with King's work in the early 60s, which we will now shift to. At the end of the 50s, King returned to his hometown in Atlanta, became co-pastor of the Ebenezer Church with his father. When he returned, he faced a new wave of backlash as his rising notoriety had gotten to the places where people did whatever they could to just try to take him down if they didn't survive support him. Upon arrival, Georgia Governor Ernest Vandiver was not excited to see King return to his home, which resulted in some actions taken, taken by the state of Georgia against King. This included him being charged after being pulled over without having transferred his license back to Georgia from Alabama, and he was fined. But there was also a plea deal which included probation that he had, you know, his attorney had agreed to. So when King joined in on the ongoing sit-ins in Atlanta and he was arrested from this, the probation had came back and he was sentenced to four months of hard labor at the Georgia State Prison. He was arrested on the 19th of October, 1960 and sent to prison on the 26th. That's some quick moving bureaucracy if you ask me. It's almost like they wanted to get rid of him or something. What is wild is that Dr. King was out of prison with the help of the very men who would later attach the FBI to him, presidential candidate John F. Kennedy and his brother, Robert actually helped get him out. Nixon had declined the request as both presidential candidates had been talked to about the situation. Because of Kennedy's help in releasing King, MLK Sr. openly endorsed Kennedy for the upcoming election, which is kind of cool. Sit-ins continued with the, uh, until a compromise was reached in March of 1961. It was around this time when the nation was paying attention. He was being watched from afar and his oration was being carried by the airwaves and who he was around. You know, he would continue to meet with Kennedy as he became president and others, which continued to boost both his brand and that of the mission of the civil rights movement. In November of 1961, the Albany movement began and by December that same year, Dr. King 
and the SCLC became actively involved. The movement aimed to challenge uh, segregation in the city and gain uh, nationwide attention. King's initial plan to stay briefly changed when he was arrested during mass demonstration on December 15th, 91. After his release and an agreement with the city was uh, violated, prompting King's return in July 1962. Chose jail time over a fine, but police, police chief Lori Pritchett discreetly arranged for his release after three days, with Billy Graham later acknowledged as the one who ended up paying his bail. Despite nearly a year of intense activism with few tangible results, the movement faced internal divisions. King called for a halt to demonstrations. The Albany effort provided a valuable tactical lesson, but the media criticism and lack of results strained the relationship, uh, relations between the SCLC and the more radical SNCC. Following, following Albany, King sought engagements where he could control the circumstance. In 1960s, in 1963, the SCLC initiated a campaign against racial segregation and the economic injustices in Birmingham, Alabama. Using the intentionally con confrontational tactics, the campaign aimed to provoke mass arrests and draw attention to unjust laws. James Bevel's recruitment of children and young adults, termed the Children's Crusade, changed the campaign's course. This is also the same time frame in which the 16th Street Baptist Church was bombed and the death of four children had occurred. The Birmingham police, led by Eugene Bull Connor used force, including high-pressure jet, water jets and police dogs against protesters. In Birmingham, there's a park that you can walk through, and there's a lot of very uh, gnarly sculptures that depict some of this. Pretty, pretty, I don't know, intense to walk through. National television broadcast the shocking footage, garnering support for the movement. King, arrested during the campaign, composed the influential letter from Birmingham jail, emphasizing the urgency of addressing racism. Campaign was ultimately successful, leading to Connor losing his job, the removal of segregation signs, and increased public space for black individuals. Walter Ruther arranged for bail for uh, King to be released and his fellow protesters as well. This guy's got friends from high places all over. The next big event along the civil rights movement was was the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Bayard Rustin was one of the main figureheads who organized this event, which was intended to gain some more civil rights for the black community, but also um, some things that were intended to be accomplished was like a $2 minimum wage, laws prohibiting racial discrimination, protecting civil rights workers, like from police and actually ending the segregation in public schools, which was still ongoing. The march was originally supposed to be a much more poignant and directed at racial injustice in the South, but President Ken Kennedy and co. had used their influence to change the march to something that they felt would benefit the administration and also their goal. The fear was that this march would not take off, it would uh, you know, not be the event that would symbolize the movement in large. Kennedy shared his fear and with that, the fear he called in some favors to boost in the potential numbers of people who would attend uh, from their estimated below 100,000 range to the turnout which ended up being over 250,000 people. It was also at this march where the uh, crowds would go to the Lincoln Memorial surrounding the reflecting pool and King would deliver the I have a dream speech one of the most famous speeches in history really the one speech that if you know who Dr. King is you know that speech the speech impacted the civil rights movement in such a powerful way it became the voice of the movement there was more work to be done still while the March on Washington was a resounding success for the movement the speech really pushed it to the front of America's consciousness the March on Washington occurred on August 28 1963 just under three months later, one of the most powerful supporters of the movement was gunned down in Dallas, Texas on November 22nd, night three. Dr. King offered a comment on this moment, which had 
caused America to seemingly stand still. He said, I am shocked and grief-stricken at the tragic assassination of President Kennedy. He was a great and dedicated president. His death is a great loss to America and the world. The finest tribute that the American people can pay to the late President Kennedy is to implement the progressive policies that he sought to initiate in foreign and domestic relations. While many were floored by this event, it did not mean that the movement in large could stop. Dr. King would continue to work with Lyndon B. Johnson, Kennedy's successor, to get the Civil Rights Act passed. Johnson would be the one to push the bill forward in 1964, which had been filibustered by the Senate following, uh, following Kennedy's assassination. In 1964, Martin Luther King Jr. engaged in a series of significant events that reflected the breadth of his civil rights activism. He commenced the New York City, he commenced the year in New York City delivering a pivotal speech on February 6th at the New Schools the American Race Crisis Lecture Series. During this address, he uh, drew parallels between the struggles of the African American and the plights of the of India's untouchables. Later on May 7, 1964, he participated in the symposium at St. Francis College in Bedford, Maine, where he stressed the imperative to eradicate notions of superior inferior races through nonviolent means. In November 1964, King threw his support behind a labor strike at the Scripto factory in Atlanta, a few blocks from Ebony. Baptist Church. The strike, which gained national attention, prompted King to organize a nationwide boycott of Scripto product. The strike concluded with the negotiation of a deal on December 24th and a formal contract between the company and the union was signed on January 9th, 1965. Simultaneously, March 1964, King collaborated with the SCLC in St. Augustine, Florida. This move involved nightly marches that frequently encountered counter-demonstrations and clan violence. Notably, during in this period, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed. As the Scripto strike continued or concluded in December 1964, King shifted his focus to a civil rights campaign in Selma, Alabama, negotiating with uh, secretly with Scripto's president. A deal was reached on December 24th. King redirected his efforts to the cause in Selma, making a strategic transition. And adding to the timeline, March 8th, 1964, King shared insights on the interview with Robert Penn Warren in New York City. During this conversation, he compared his activism to his father's, highlighting the key distinction of his commitment to nonviolence. Additionally, he explored the evolving phases of the civil rights movement and a pursuit of integration. Now, things were not all sunshines and rainbows for Dr. King. Last few years of his life, he began to feel stretched thin, that the cause needed him just as much as family did. He wanted to be a good father, a good husband, but he also wanted to do whatever the people needed him to do to help fight the good fight. Still, he persisted. He joined a movement in Selma, Alabama, which is the one I had mentioned at the top of the episode. The voting rights uh, issue was the one on the table there and is a pretty substantial one. There had been so many layovers, layovers of the Jim Crow era that still persisted in the South and one of those was the ways in which they would block people from obtaining the right to vote. There were arbitrary reasons that they would be turned away from registering to vote. There were tests that made no sense or they were purposefully vague as to exclude the correct answers at a moment in which the registrar felt that they needed to do so. They did this to keep certain parts of the population from voting and I know a lot of people like to be cute and slick and say that voting doesn't matter but if it did not matter back then why go through all the effort to prevent or take it away from someone even to this day we see things that change voting zones and gerrymandering going on which strengthens the vote in favor of one side over the other and different jurisdictions so clearly still matters at least a little bit the foot soldiers in Selma uh 
of the voting rights movement were marching from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama to the Capitol to show their numbers and demonstrate their cause. The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee out of Selma were the ones who drafted the plan and Ella Baker and John Lewis being the most notable members. They were joined by others, most notably Stokely Carmichael. They would end up inviting SCLC and then together they would formulate the plan on what the goal was and how they would go about it. Dr. King even spoke to President Johnson indicating their intent on removing voter restriction and ending suppression of the black voters in these communities. Smaller marches had occurred in different places and one happened in Marion which uh, led to the death of Jimmy Lee Jackson after the protest was broken up and a state trooper followed him until Jimmy was shot. This inspired the movement to go directly to the state capitol. The first march occurred on March 7th 1965. This is what is known as Bloody Sunday as the crowd gathered at the Brown Chapel in they marched together down to the Edmund Pettus Bridge, walking over the crest of the bridge before they were being met with a line of state troopers, state patrol, blocking their path. They were told that they were gathering illegally, should disperse, and a group of leaders spoke that they had the right to be there, and they were quickly met with tear gas and baton. I spoke about Joanne Bland, and I also met with her sister, Miss Linda Blackman-Lowry, who was also at the march. Miss Joanne was nine, Miss Linda was 15, and they were both beaten by adult state troopers. Miss Joanne spoke about waking up in the back of the car after going unconscious and then the more heartbreaking one is that Miss Linda told us that she had also lost consciousness but years later a major network was doing a story on the anniversary of these marches and showed her archival footage and she had been shown you know footage of herself being beaten that she had never ever seen and like she didn't know that it was that bad or maybe subconsciously blocked it out whatever um and her telling that story is just pretty pretty heartbreaking to hear so yeah uh bloody sunday was just that dr king and crew arrived and uh wanted to try again the following tuesday and they would gather once again at the chapel march across the bridge and saw the state troopers dr king knelt down prayed turned back to the chapel which is now known as Turnaround Tuesday. Seems like it was more for the best. It seems like it was for the best, given the events of the two days prior. This moment actually casts a lot of doubt on Dr. King's character as a leader. And with burgeoning black power movement beginning to grow, these more radical people like Malcolm X, Stokely Carmichael, Fred Hampton, these guys become more popular down the road because of that. The full march had happened on March 25th, but not before the murder of one Reverend James Reeb. On March 11th, Reverend Reeb was, a uh, called to or reverend reeb had uh, answered a call put out by dr king to the clergy across the nation to aid in the opposition of the wrongdoing reeb traveled from boston to be a part of it and was beaten by four men in selma who all were uh, they were not charged or found guilty i can't remember what it was this further pushed stokely carmichael from the center of the message he felt that the attention james reeb was doing was or received was doing a disservice to the movement since they had um you know been just as upset about or they should have been just as upset about jimmy lee jackson's death thursday march 25th 1965 25,000 people give or take marched from selma to montgomery it took three days to complete the journey and the marchers made camps along the way as they went following the marches concluding the voting rights act of 95 was written by President Johnson and passed in August that same year. Also at the end of the marching, Viola Luzo was gunned down while driving people back from uh, Montgomery to Selma. Viola was a mother of four, a white woman from Detroit who was in town because she believed in the cause. She had the opportunity to um, 
you know, make a difference. She wanted to help. On my trip, we did stop by the marker on the highway, um, which is, you know, dedicated in her honor in this in the spot near where she was killed. And I've never heard her story before that. So that was, that was kind of eye-opening. Also in the aftermath, Jonathan Daniels was killed by a part-time deputy who had threatened a group of just-released prisoners who were in jail following an arrest that uh, made after protesting a whites-only stores in Alabama. He was shielding some of the others at the moment. The Voting Rights Act passed, uh, but as I mentioned, it, the whole thing kind of came as a big blow to King's reputation amongst the rowdier, sharp-tongued youth in the movement. He was seen as too slow-moving, too middle-class, didn't represent some of their, their personal feelings about how it should go, and this rolled into a declaration that Dr. King had made into uh, opposition of the Vietnam War in 1967. This was the biggest blow to his reputation and he never really recovered from this blowback blow emotionally. In his opposition to the Vietnam War, Martin Luther King Jr. agreed to the, that the conflict diverted resources from domestic social welfare, asserting that the nation prioritized military spending over programs of social uplift and was heading towards spiritual decline. I don't think he said anything that off base, but you know, you know how people get. He criticized the United States for its involvement in Vietnam and accused it of uh, causing the death of a million Vietnamese, predominantly children. This stance resulted in a loss of support from key white allies, including President Johnson, also Billy Graham, and you know, uh, some publishers. King's Beyond Vietnam speech marked a shift in his political advocacy, lining with the progressive ideals of the Highlander Research and Education Center. He became advocating. He began advocating for fundamental changes in American politics and economics, expressing opposition to the war and desire for resource redistribution to address injustice. While publicly cautious about communist associations in private, King discussed his support for democratic socialism. The speech emphasized King's belief in true compassion, calling for the restructuring of system that perpetuated poverty, criticized America's alliances, and advocated the supporting the oppressed in the third world. Despite encouragement to run for president in 1968, King declined, feeling more suited to activism than politics. On April 15, 1967, an anti-war march, King addressed uh, the moral imperative of both civil rights and peace movements encouraging unity. Although he became more involved in the anti-war effort, King expressed reservations about the emerging hippie culture, <laughs> considering it a flight from reality, not not completely off base there either. In January 1968, he called for a large march on Washington, condemning the war's brutality and urging a change in political leadership for more peaceful approach in Southeast Asia. Now, as I mentioned, one of the issues he had with Viet the Vietnam conflict was the resource being spent on killing people in another country while we had children without a thing to eat in our own country. He had a vision to turn things around in the failing camp of his where, you know, he needed to focus on building our own country from the bottom up. The poor needed help and so with the help of Marianne Wright who worked with Robert Kennedy to show how bad situations across various places had become so poverty stricken. Plan was to do another march on Washington but this one for poverty. Poor People's Campaign is the name of it and it was the last brainchild that you know, he had. He believed that if the wealthy could get subsidies for their companies, poor people should be able to get some of that too to bring them to a living, comfortable level. In a speech he gave, like the, the one I talked about before, uh, the one which took 
place two months before his assassination. The drum major instinct is the speech, and in it, he talks about visiting uh, people in jails in Birmingham, and he talked about um, this conversation that he said. So uh, I'm just going to summarize it, or read through it a little bit um but he says i was in birmingham the other day the white wardens all enjoyed coming in into the cell and talk about the race problem and they were showing us where we were so wrong demonstrating they were showing us where segregation was so right and they're showing us where intermarriage was so wrong so i got to preach in and we get to talk in and calmly because they wanted to talk about it we got down one day to the point that was the second or third day to talk about where they lived and how much they were earning and when those brothers told me <laughs> what they were and I said, now, you know what? You ought to be marching with us. <laughs> You're just as poor as us. I said, you're put in the position of supporting your oppressor because through the prejudice and blindness, you fail to see that the same forces that opp oppress us in American society oppress the poor whites too. And all you living in the living on is the satisfaction of your skin being white and the drum major instinct of thinking that you are somebody big because you are white and you're so poor you can't send your children to school. You ought to be out here marching with us, with every one of us, every time we have a march. I think this really speaks to where his head was at at the time you know what his goals were he was bridging the gap on the moment trying to unite the lost people from when he spoke out against the vietnam war trying to do something special purposeful you know for everyone in the country bringing unity into it bringing you know a universal issue you know wealth scarcity food scarcity so this campaign did not have his typical supporters though many people who have supported him before no longer did Bayard Rustin, longtime collaborator, deemed this march to be too vague and expecting too much. This was a short-lived defeat because, as February turned into March of 1968, sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee, were striking with low wages and poor safety, which had led the two led to two men being killed by garbage trucks that they had worked on. They felt it was unfair and unsafe for them to continue working in this situation. These workers were majority were black workers, and with this new cause of poor people's problems, Dr. King felt that he could do this too keeping in mind that he was still you know he stretched super duper thin none of his constituents really wanted him to even go but despite this he told them keep working I'm gonna go do this so he left on March 29th 1968 and arrived in total chaos his first day a riot broke out and largely in part like he his I mentioned his crew would show up to these places. They would add on to an already existing movement, but they would do research. They would come in. They would kind of work out a good platform to be on, get everybody on the same page. And, you know, when that happened, he was pressured by the media, like immediately. They're like, you came in here not really understanding what's happening. And like, this didn't go well for you. But still, they fought on trying to organize a demonstration for the plight of these sanitation workers. If you have never heard of this event, is largely in part due to the fact that the protests were probably overshadowed by the death of Dr. King. The images from the protests are pretty powerful. The men wearing like sandwich board signs reading I am a man which translates to treat me with dignity and respect essentially. There's a really stellar monument of the movement in Memphis that I will post a picture of in the video as well. Dr. King was offered to stay in a nice hotel but he felt it would be too hypocritical to be there on behalf of poor people and stay in like a swanky hotel so he stayed in the Lorraine Motel in Memphis. The evening of April 3rd Martin was in bed when his constituents called him to come to the Morris Chapel give a short speech and he got out of bed got dressed and went to the church and gave what is now known as the mountaintop speech one of the like <laughs> staples of his intense 
crazy great speeches and the fact that he just showed up and did it is even more impressive the next day while waiting for his party to prepare themselves to attend a friend's dinner he was leaning over the balcony talking to jesse jackson when a shot rang out and he was hit in the cheek the shot went down his neck into his shoulder front of the room 306 he was gunned down uh, as i mentioned jesse jackson below uh, ralph abernathy in the room heard the shot rung out ran out of the room jesse jackson ran upstairs also um then went to call coretta he was taken to saint joseph hospital where he was given an emergency surgery and then died an hour later he was shot at 6:01 p.m and died officially at 7:05 p.m on april 4th contrary to the u2 song if you don't know pride by u2 was written about dr king and the line goes Early morning, April 4, shot rang out of the Memphis sky. Great song, but they missed the timing. Bono changes the lyrics now to where he sings early evening, which makes more sense. James Earl Ray fled the scene and initially managed to escape, sparking an intense manhunt. Ray was eventually apprehended in London two months later and extradited to the United States. 1969, he pleaded guilty to the murder of Dr. King and was sentenced to 99 years in prison. However, Ray later uh, recanted his confession, claiming that he was not the actual assassin and then he had been set up as part of a conspiracy. And then he would recant that confession and say that his lawyers told him to say that. Like, uh, <laughs> it's, it's kind of a mess. I don't really know who to believe, but following the news of his death, riots broke out in major cities across the country. President Johnson was unable to have leaders of the movements quell some of these uh they lasted for days and the national guard was called in in some of these places to return order his funeral at the ebenezer church in atlanta both jacqueline kennedy and robert f kennedy even attended the moment in the video where i saw at the center near ebenezer which held the wagon that carried his casket you know that video that played the speech in which he eulogized himself that showed jackie kennedy coretta scott king two widows two widows to some men who for all their faults did try to do what they could do to make life better for the people that they represented uh it was it was super powerful as his words filled the room so those words i would like to share with you a little bit the entire speech is like 48 minutes long something like that cuts out in and out here and uh there a few spots but uh the three minutes of the speech i really care about are towards the end i won't play the whole thing but i really want to focus on the key moments and let you feel kind of what i felt hopefully all right so here it is, the last little bit of the Drum Major Instinct speech by Martin Luther King on February 4th, 1968. About that day when we will be victimized of what is life's final common denominator. Talking about that's something you know, the end of called death. end of your life. We all think about it, and every now and then I think about my own death, and I think about my own funeral, and I don't think of it in a morbid sense. Every now and then I ask myself, what is it that I would want to say, and I leave the word to you. So, yeah, basically a preamble, just talking about what, when he thinks about his death, what he would want people to say at his funeral. If any of you around, when I have to meet my day, I don't want a long funeral. And if you get somebody to deliver the eulogy, tell them not to talk too long. Every now and then I wonder what I want them to say. Tell them not to mention that I have a Nobel Peace Prize. That isn't important. Tell them not to mention that I have three or four hundred other awards. That's not important. Tell them not to mention where I went to school. It's like all these things in the whole speech he's talking about the drum major instincts causing people to um, be who they're not supposed to be. Like trying to pretend that there's something that they're not and that's essentially what he's he's grabbing at in this part so um he's he's laying it out like the final 
crescendo of the whole speech, tying everything together. I'd like somebody to mention that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life serving others. I'd like for like that part right there. He's just like the grit in the voice is just so intense. Somebody to say that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to love somebody. I want you to say that day that I tried to be right on the war question. He tried to be right on the war question. Like the, he's like having all of this, you know, this I'm assuming not depression or anything, but like he's reflecting on the things the choices he's made and he's like firmly believing that what he did was right i want you to be able to say that day that i did try to feed the hungry i want you to be able to say that day that i did try in my life to call those who were naked i want you to say on that day that i did try in my life to visit those who were in prison I want you to say that I tried to love and save humanity. Yeah, just just really getting into it in this next part is the... Oh, man. All right, <laughs> we'll just get into it. Yes, if you want to say that I was a drum major. Say that I was a drum major for justice. Say that I was a drum major for peace. I was a drum major for righteousness. And all of the other shallow things will not matter. I won't have any money to leave behind. I won't have the fine and luxurious things of life to leave behind, but I just want to leave a committed life behind. And that's all I want to say. If I can help somebody as I pass along, if I can cheer somebody with a well song, if I can show somebody he's traveling wrong, then my living will not be in vain. If I can do my duty as a Christian, or if I can bring salvation to a world once wrought, if I can spread the... That, that's basically the... That is the big bulk of it. Like, a, just the intense oration, you know, that... I don't know. It gets me every time. It's so, so impressive. And it's just amazing that I never had heard that before. Like, ever. <laughs> it's... I would have remembered hearing that. That's crazy to me. So, yeah, that's the end of uh dr king's life uh the episode uh you know as we all know he would inspire many people who would have kept his legacy alive i know there's a lot of people who feel as though his legacy is maybe too massive till too many like false idol type of air around him as a topic but when you contextualize everything it's hard to downplay a lot of what he did he was instrumental people did get inspired by him he did push forward you know would someone else come in and do the exact same thing like be that person for the group had he never existed? Possibly, but we just don't know. He was there. He did what he did. He inspired change. He inspired passion. He's definitely inspired me. I spoke about going to the Lorraine Motel, which is now a museum, and going to the part where his room his hotel room is and it's left exactly how it was back then and it's so odd because on one hand it's just a motel room but on the other hand you know exactly who slept there you know what happened you you know the intensity of the situation and what all left like where he woke up late that one night or was woken up and gave one of the most intense speeches i've seen the mountaintop i'm not gonna get there i might not get there with you but i promise you we will get there like <laughs> like he but he was also human he called his mother that day spoke to her about spending more time with the family like it's crazy how those places exist and can like have so much power over us you know in the grand scheme of things it's just a motel room but it's also so so much more i don't know 
I, I don't know. I don't have any, I haven't have a good ending for that, but it is wild. What I do know is that, you know, being someone who was never religious, never really had an interest in any of it, uh, if I had a pastor like him, I would definitely be a follower. Like, I listened to a lot of his speeches, like, after that trip, I just downloaded a bunch that you can listen to them and i'm like good gravy like this is intense and he's not just like you know talking about down your throat about jesus loves this he hates this like he's uh putting nuance into the conversation he's giving philosophical like <laughs> he's he's wrapping it all together and it's crazy uh, but you know i don't want i want a priest that like presents like him or a pastor that presents like him i want somebody who you know is authentic in his passion and a mix of all the things that made him unique and i don't think you can get that anymore i think this is great example of how unique he, he was but he's also a great example of what probably should be denouncers called him a communist a traitor and the like for simply just saying that the country should focus on its own people which is crazy but also how little things have changed you can have these exact same conversations with people today oh you don't think we should do this blah 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 you must be a communist blah 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 like it's <laughs> the world's different so different but it's also not which i don't know he'd probably be sad by it but so maybe we should do better i guess i think this episode has made me reflect a lot about the things i had experienced when i took that trip last year and honestly if i didn't take that trip i don't think i'd even be making this episode or the entire podcast for that matter like i don't want to be too up my own butt about it but like i experienced a lot of things a lot of history that I would have never known and you know had I not gone and sure I saw a lot of things that I did know about but the overall feeling was that I basically knew nothing before and I still don't know that much now so gave me a whole new perspective on the civil rights movement because I was foolishly uninformed about it but uh, you know that's just part of the system the educational system uh so hopefully you all learned something and hopefully this makes you want to learn even more if you enjoyed this please comment like subscribe on the youtube video facebook group check that out uh also check the merch out in the link in the description also if you just want to google linktree slash remedial scholar you can find it but all the links should be in the description wherever you're consuming this if you have a topic suggestion you can let me know what you'd like to hear by emailing remedial scholar at gmail.com or just clipping clicking the topic suggestion link in link tree you can also find all of the social media link in there as well as the youtube if you're just listening to this and you want to watch see the pictures from my trip that i'm sharing that are i'm not just going to be sharing all the pictures from the trip in this video it's going to be pertinent but um anyway yeah that's all i have for this week have a great week stay curious until next time